Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our great friends at Alumni Hall. And guys, uh, I have a confession to make. I am an idiot. I told you guys last week on the show, I think on the Thursday episode, that time was running out for you to get your Mother's Day gear from Alumni Hall, and that Thursday was the last episode in which I would be able to remind you of that, because I thought Mother's Day was today. In my defense, though, my mom's birthday is May 5th, and it's always like right around Mother's Day, so I just, I mean, we usually kind of celebrate them together. So I think my mom's birthday is coming up. We're going to celebrate that. I just kind of think Mother's Day is like that same weekend, and it wasn't. I'm just dumb, okay? I I own it. But hey, my idiocy is great news for you because that means you still have a whole nother week to pick up some incredible George gear for your mom for Mother's Day, become the best son, the best daughter ever, make her day, make her year, just by shopping at Alumni Hall. And you guys can stop in in in-store inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center here in the wonderful Classic City. Or, if you're not local, it's all good. You can still shop online at alumnihall.com. Their online shopping experience is second to none, and they get out to you guys incredibly fast, and it's wrapped with care in a way that no one else does. Just trust me on that. You can always count on Alumni Hall because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. All right, guys, I am your host, Tyler, and back with me once again. I mean, three shows in a row. It's... It's like it's 2017 again, but back with me again is my co-host Curtis, and today we are finally making good on our promise to get to all of those mailbag questions that have been piling up, but first, 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 I just got in from the Dan McGill Tennis Complex where the Georgia men's tennis team punched its ticket to the Sweet 16, so I got to give a shout out to both teams, the men and the women. Because they have both now punched their tickets to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament. The guys took down Oklahoma today for one. And the one loss was a match we had to retire Trent Bride. Hurt his ankle is what it looked like to me uh, in yesterday's first round match. Did not play in, in the doubles lineup. Came out for singles on court three. And he was clearly hobbling around. He, he put forth a very gutty effort. But in the second set, he just had to retire. So that's why we lost that one. But we were in control the rest of the match. All the other courts. So... Great win for the guys. The ladies punched their ticket yesterday afternoon with a 4-0 victory over Florida State. 
And I'm pumped up, guys. Both teams will be hosting the Sweet 16 here in Athens next weekend. I know I've said this before, but guys, I really, really mean it this time. If you have never been out to a Georgia tennis match, this is the time. The mecca of college tennis will be absolutely rocking. We have two legitimate national title contenders here on campus, and this is the last chance for you guys to get out there and take in a match this season here in Athens. Because after this, after next weekend, the rest of the tournament moves to Orlando. So come on out, guys. The weather is going to be awesome. It's going to be in the 80s. might be a little warm, but hey, it sure beats like 35 degrees, right? So come on out. Support these teams. They need your support, guys. There's going to be two tough matches. The women have Oklahoma. It's weird. The guys just beat Oklahoma. The women have Oklahoma in the Sweet 16 next Friday at 5 p.m. Guys, Oklahoma, this is a really tough draw for the ladies. Oklahoma was ranked as high as number two in the country earlier in the year. They suffered a couple of losses. But this is still a really, really good, dangerous team. We did beat them earlier in the year in the national indoor tournament. But this team is dangerous. And I think it's a really tough draw for for our ladies. But I think they're up to the task. But we need every single fan that we can get out there. Because, guys, it really matters. In college tennis, when you have that intimate environment of all those fans right there on top of you, it gives us a massive home court edge. And we need you guys to make that home court edge as great as it possibly can be. So come on out, support them, support the guys too. Guys have a, have a tough matchup against Harvard as well. I know you hear Harvard and you're like, I mean, it's an Ivy League school. Like that should be a gimme, right? Not so fast, my friend. Harvard's good. They beat Duke earlier in the year. They beat NC State. They beat Arizona State. They pushed Michigan, a top seven Michigan team to the brink, lost that match 4-3. So it's a really, really good Harvard team. They have two singles players inside the top 40 on courts one and courts two. Again, I do believe that we are up for the task. I believe that we are the better team. But in college tennis, I mean, hey, anything can happen. So we need everyone out there to be as loud and rowdy as possible to give us that crazy home court advantage that you only get at the Dan McGill Tennis Complex. But if we win, guys, again, if we if the if the guys and the ladies win, the rest of the tournament moves to Orlando, the Elite Eight, the Final Four championship match moves to Orlando. And yours truly, Glory UGA, we will be on site covering all of the action for you. So we're very excited about that, and uh, we'll have you guys covered. But all right, Curtis, mailbag time, my friend. We've got a lot of questions here. We're probably not going to be able to get through all of them in the limited time that we have available to record today, but we will try. We will try to make as much of a dent in them as we possibly can. But Curtis, let's go ahead and kick this off. And you guys know we like to start off with a, a big picture question that we can really sink our teeth into. And we have a good one today. We have a really good one today. It's more of a, a general college football question, but it certainly is related to, to Georgia football. So we'll go with it here. So Brad has a, a question where he says, hey, guys, we all know it will happen eventually. But which team is the biggest threat to dethrone the dogs in 2023? This is obviously a question that none of us really want to think about. At this point, we've gotten very used to just being national champions. But as much of a downer as it is to think about, Brad's right, Curtis. At some point, we will lose again. At some point, some other team will win a national championship. It'd be great if we could just win every title from here on to eternity. But we also live in the real world. We live in reality. And that's just not going to happen. So, Curtis, if it does end up being this year, and I hope it's not. I want that three-peat badly. We all do. But just for argument's sake, for the sake of this question, if 2023 happens to be the season, 
where we are knocked off of our perch at the top of the college football mountain, which team out there is the biggest threat to actually do that? If it happens this year, I think the best bet is probably Tennessee. Um, really? In the, in the entire country? Oh, in the – see, I thought it was in the SEC. Well, okay, I don't know. He, I don't, he didn't really specify. I took it as entire country. If I'm going to go entire country, I am actually probably going to go with um, either Ohio State or Michigan. Okay, we'll get to Michigan in a second. Let's go with Ohio State. Obviously, we know they pushed us to the absolute brink. Midnight miracle. We all know how it went down. Incredible finish. Go dogs. But we were down for most of that game, Curtis, right? They mm-hmm. do have some key pieces returning. The receivers, Marvin Harrison Jr., Ekbuka coming back, right? Running backs, they, they weren't fully healthy at running back. We have to admit that. Those guys will be back. But they are missing that one big piece who played the game of his freaking life in the Peach Bowl. Obviously, C.J. Stroud going number two overall in uh, what, last week's NFL, last weekend's NFL draft. And Curtis, I say it all the time here on this podcast, the quarterback position In this day and age, modern football, it is 1,000%, no questions asked, the most important position on the field. If you are set at quarterback, you've got a shot. If you are not set at quarterback, if you don't have that guy, you are not going to win a national championship. I believe C.J. Stroud, at least at the college level, was that type of guy. And with all the uncertainty at the quarterback position right now for Ohio State, I mean, it's either going to be Kyle McCord or Devin Brown. I think it's probably going to be Kyle McCord. Devin Brown didn't play in their spring game. He had to have minor finger surgery. So I think Kyle McCord is the guy who has the leg up right now in that competition. And Ryan Day has really never produced a bad offense. Whoever has started for them while Ryan Day has been there, even when he was their offense coordinator, generally speaking, has been very productive for that team in that offense. So I don't think it's a stretch to to say that, yeah, they'll probably still be good on offense again this year. But the thing is, we just don't know. At least I don't know if Kyle McCord or Devin Brown is the type of quarterback that you can win a national championship with. I knew that C.J. Stroud was that good. Again, hell, they came you know a missed field goal away from winning a national championship last year. But let's be real, they would have gone on to beat TCU. And them losing that game was no fault of C.J. Strouds. He did everything in his power to give them a chance to win that game. And even though they do have a lot of other key pieces on that roster returning, does losing C.J. Stroud, a quarterback of that caliber, a known quantity of that caliber at the most important position on the field, is that not something that at least in some way mitigates the threat that Ohio State poses as potentially the team to knock us off our perch on top of the college football world? I, th- I I don't think it is, and the reason I say no is because it just with those receivers, they can make life easy on most quarterbacks. I mean, there's no doubt, Curtis. You are absolutely not wrong there when it comes to receivers. I mean, they will have arguably the best receiver core in the nation again this year. I mean, they got their top three guys coming back from last year. You got Marvin Harrison Jr., Julian Fleming, and Mecca Buka. You throw in two highly touted five-star freshmen, Carnell Tate, Noah Rogers, Brendan Ennis as well. I mean, they just have an embarrassment of riches at the receiver position. That's, you know, the way that we recruit tight end, that's how Ohio State recruits receivers. It's crazy. But that's what happens when guys come into your offense, they put up massive numbers, and then they get drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. You become a school that's known as a receiver-producing school, and you attract the best town in the country just the same way that we're attracting the best tight end town in the country. So those receivers are certainly a very nice security blanket 
for whoever ultimately ends up winning that job. And again, like I said earlier, they are super talented all over the field. They have a ton of guys coming back on defense. Tommy Eichenberg at middle linebacker, who I think has some athletic limitations, but he's a really experienced, really good inside linebacker at the college level. You got Jack Sawyer, a former five-star guy, coming back at the Jack linebacker position. You got Tui Mullau, their star pass rusher coming back from last year. Michael Hall Jr. coming back on the interior of that defensive line. Lathan Ransom, who was a good safety for them most of last year. Now, he's the guy that Arian Smith just left looking like a fool. He falling over his own two feet last year. But he's still a good player. Got Denzel Burke coming back at cornerback. Still Chambers also back at inside line. They have a bunch of dudes coming back on defense. And they really are pretty loaded on that side of the ball. And then offensively, of course, receivers. You look at what they have coming back at running back. You got Travion Henderson coming back. Mayan Williams are top two dudes coming back at running back. They really are set up for a national championship run at every single position, essentially. Now, offensive line, tackle, that's certainly a question, but there's very few questions on this Ohio State team with this roster outside of the quarterback position. And that's the problem for me. I just put such a premium on that position. Maybe there's just so much talent that as long as they get like solid quarterback play, they can still be a national championship contender. I just need to see it before I sit here and say, oh yeah, Ohio State is the most dangerous threat to unseating us as the king of college football right now. I think they certainly are one of the threats, one of the biggest threats. I just don't know if they are the biggest threat because that, that quarterback position, man, I just put such a premium on that. But Curtis, the team I'm actually more interested to hear your take on is Michigan, because this is a team that has won back-to-back Big Ten championships. This is the team that has frustrated Ohio State's national championship aspirations each of the last two seasons. And like Ohio State, they have a ton of talent coming back. So I'm very curious, what's your take on Michigan? Why are they one of the top threats to unseat us this year? Um, Michigan, I think you have to look at, um, I mean, they've been recruiting well. <clears throat> they've been playing well the last couple of years. And yes, they got embarrassed last both times they've been in the playoffs. Um, but when you look at having Blake Corum back next year to go back with J.J. McCarthy, I mean, those are two big weapons. Nomin Edwards as well in the backfield. Yeah. Who I still wish very much was on our roster. Wanted him badly. Thought we had a shot, but he stayed home. You know, Michigan's an interesting team, Curse. I do think that they are built to win. Like They are built to win at a high level. Problem for Michigan is that there's this team called the Georgia Bulldogs that exist. And Michigan basically is built the exact same way we are built. And here's my thing with Michigan. I think they're very good. I think they absolutely can win the Big Ten again. I think they absolutely can make a run in the cultural playoff. I think it absolutely actually win a game in the cultural playoff this time and get to the national championship game. But if they face us, Curse, it's just the raw matchup for them. Because I'm not saying, and Brad's right, Brad, like Brad, I hate to admit it, but you're right. We will lose at some point. Like we all have to come to that realization. It's going to happen, but I do not think it will be the Michigan Wolverines that do that. At least not as currently constituted because they are built just like we are cursed. And here's my thing. They, to beat us, they would try to out Georgia, Georgia. And I simply do not think you're going to be able to out Georgia, Georgia, because as much talent as they have, we have more talent. You will not beat us at our game. Someone will beat us. Someone will beat us eventually, but they will not beat us doing what we do to other teams because we will just have more talent than you and we will do it better than you. What it's going to take to beat Georgia is what we saw from Ohio State, a wide open offense, can throw the ball over the field. You have to have elite quarterback play, elite passing from the quarterback. And J.J. McCarthy is good. He's very good. He's dynamic, but he is not that guy. At least he has not been that to this point in his career. So that's my hold up on Michigan. I think they're really good. I have a lot of respect for them. And I know what we saw two years ago. It was two years ago, and they've built further out since then. 
But and, and, and if we play them, I don't know if it'd be like that again, but I think that we would handle them fairly comfortably. Because again, I just do not think you're going to out Georgia, Georgia. You have to beat us a different way. And I just don't think that Michigan is built to, to do the things that you have to do to beat us. And if you look at the teams that have beat us, Curtis, you know, in the past two, three years, Ohio, Ohio State didn't. They got really close, right? Why? Elite quarterback play, elite receivers. You go back and you look at uh, Alabama in the SEC Championship game in 2021. Elite quarterback, elite receivers. Those are the teams that give us trouble. I mean, if you go to LSU, very, very good quarterback play, borderline elite receivers last year, put up 30 points in our defense. Those are the teams that give us trouble. It's elite quarterback play and big-time receiver play. You have to be able to throw the ball all over the field, and I just don't know if Michigan's built to do that. So I would lean more towards Ohio State than I would Michigan, even though Michigan does have the more established quarterback coming back with J.J. McCarthy. I just don't think his skill set is the type of skill set that generally gives us issues. And I just don't think the way that that Michigan team is built to win football games is a good matchup against us. Here's a team, Curtis, I'm going to throw out. And you're going to mock me. I know everyone out there is going to shake their heads. They're going to spit out whatever they're drinking right now. I know it's going to happen. And I say this with great trepidation because I don't I don't know if I fully believe myself, but this is talking about the type of team it takes to beat Georgia in terms of like what you have to be good at. Curtis, as wrong as this feels to say, I believe that USC could be a legitimate challenger based on how their offense is built and the type of offenses that have traditionally given us issues. I think that could really be a team that challenges. I really do. I knew that's where you were going. Yeah. Offensively, like look, Caleb Williams is as good as it gets. I mean, let's be honest, Oklahoma under Lincoln Riley and by extension now USC, they're the same thing. Like it's going to take someone that has a good defense to go along with a good offense because you're going to have to stop them. I mean, that's just as simple as that. Like they're going to get their points. That's just who they always are. I mean, Curtis, I believe USC would have been in the playoff last year if it wasn't for Caleb Williams being injured in the Pac-12 title game. I mean, I, I truly believe that. And I, I, I was actually hoping that would happen because I, I thought last year's version of USC, we would be able to be because their defense was garbage. It was hot freaking garbage. This year, it's might be like slightly garbage, but like it's not going to, I don't think it's going to be as bad. They have added some pieces. I mean, obviously we know they had a Bear Alexander. I mean, we know why. I mean, Bear Alexander was not going to start here, got up in his feelings. He went and left and that's fine. Good for him. But he's, he's at least better than what they had last year on the defensive front, right? Mm-hmm. He absolutely is. And you look at a guy like, like Anthony Lucas. Um, who the guys that was the top 50 borderline top 50 guy in that number one Texas A&M class of 2022. He's one of those guys that transferred out and now he's at USC hasn't played a ton, but that's a dude that can absolutely play. They got a guy from Arizona. that was a good player. Kyan Barnes, Mason Cobb from Oklahoma state played a lot of football for them. and was a really good defensive play from that linebacker. They've added some good pieces in the portal. I still do not think this is even going to be like a, a good defense, but I think it's going to be competent. And I think if they can be competent, that's a scary team because of what they can do offensively with Caleb Williams, number one, obviously, is a Heisman Trophy winner. Now, we, we know they lose Jordan Addison, but you get Mario Williams coming back. They went and got a 1,000-plus yard receiver in Dorian Singer. Brennan Rice did some really good things towards the end of last season. Michael uh, Michael Jackson III also did some really good things. They have receivers for days. Taj Washington. Offensively, it's not going to be a problem. They're going to be one of the best, if not the best, offenses in the entire country. It's it's the same case with Lincoln Riley every year. Can your defense be good enough to give you a shot to win games? I think their defense is going to be better. I don't think their defense is good enough to beat us. I don't believe that yet. But you're talking about which team 
is built in a way right now that would give us a lot of issues, I think it's USC because of what they can do offensively. And I, I know that you can say, well, Ohio State too. I, look, Ohio State's defense is certainly better than USC's. No questions asked there. But I go back to the most important position on the field. We do not know if Ohio State is the answer. We, we think probably because of, of history and, and the track record with Ryan Day, you, you think that there's probably a very strong chance they do have a really good quarterback there. But you don't know that for sure. And even if, no matter who ends up starting for them, whether it's McCord, whether it's Devin Brown, they're not going to be as good as Caleb Williams. So I know that a lot of Georgia fans, we have no respect for the Pac-12. I get that. You scoff the notion that USC can could actually give us trouble because, oh, they don't play in defense. And I get that. They, they're not good on defense. But just look at the teams that have put up points on us and have given us issues. It's the type of teams that can do what USC – I mean, go back to the Rose Bowl curse in 2017. That, that Oklahoma offense with Lincoln Riley, I would say this USC offense is better. I would argue that they are better, and they put up 40-plus points on us. Now, fortunately, we were able to score just enough points to, to win that game in an overtime, but, I mean, they gave us a run for their money. And I, I'm just saying, man, like that's a team just to, just to watch out for. I do not think they are good enough on defense right now to ultimately be able to beat us, but I do think, again, offensively, that is a team – that will force us to win a shootout of sorts. And I know that sounds crazy because most of you listening here have no respect for Lincoln Riley and have no respect, especially for the Pac-12. But just look at our track record, guys. The games that we have lost the past three to four years or the games that we have come close to losing, whether you go back to 2019 SEC Championship game against LSU with Joe Burrow and that wide receiver core, go back to Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl in 2017, Alabama SEC Championship game 2021, Ohio State Peach Bowl last year. It is teams that have that combination of elite quarterback play and elite playmaking ability at the skill positions. Because the reality is, guys, the advantage that we have over teams that we play over opposing offenses is in the trenches. It's it's in the front seven. That is where teams cannot match up with us. And that's why I say a team like Michigan doesn't scare me in the slightest because that's how they will try to beat us just by outmanning us on the lines of scrimmage, and they just aren't ready for that. They are not going to win that battle, not against the Georgia defense, not against the Georgia offense line. It's just not going to happen. Where we don't have as much of an advantage defensively is out there on the perimeter, and that's partly because of the way offenses have evolved over the years where they are now attacking all the space that's out there on the field, which for years they didn't. Everything was condensed, like old I formation stuff. Everything was condensed. You had two receivers out wide, and that was it. Now, that's not how offenses approach the game of football. They attack the space all over the field and they spread you out and that makes it more difficult to give help to those DBs out there covering these elite skill players. More often than not, those guys are left out there on islands and you can you can hold up in those situations against average guys, against slightly above average guys, but when you face the Ohio State's of the world where they have the elite receivers that they have, all of a sudden now, that advantage that you might have defensively, that's negated because they're not even really trying to run the football against you. They're just doing it just to keep you honest because they know that if they try to run the football down your throat, they're playing right into our hands because we just recruit too well. And there's too many things that, that could go wrong if you're trying to run the football because all of those guys have to make their blocks. If one guy misses their blocks and gets beat on any given play, that could blow the play up. Well, if you're spreading the ball out wide and you're trying to distribute the ball to those receivers out there in space, all they have to do is beat one guy. Beat one guy, and they've made the play. Now, of course, your offensive line has to hold up in protection, but with the advent of RPOs and the overall expansion of the quick game, quarterbacks can get the ball out of their hands far more quicker than they used to, and so they're not as vulnerable to getting sacked, just kind of standing back there and letting a play develop as they used to. 
So despite their defensive issues, which again, I do think that's a defense that's going to be better this year. How much? That certainly remains to be seen. But that's why I believe that USC is a team right now, maybe more than any other team out there in the country, that's more equipped to give our defense issues because they've got it all. They've got the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. You have the offensive mastermind as, as your head coach. You've got fantastic skill talent all over the field. And that's the combination that has given our defense trouble over the past couple of years. And I'm not saying that teams like Ohio State and Alabama and maybe even LSU and in Florida State, for instance, as well. I, I'm not saying that those teams can't pose a challenge to our dominance over the college football landscape this season. Maybe J.J. McCarthy takes a step forward as a passer this year and the Michigan passing game becomes dynamic in a way that it hasn't been in the past couple of years. Maybe Ohio State has an answer at quarterback. Maybe it's Kyle McCord, Devin Brown, whoever, and one of those two guys ends up being elite for Ohio State. Maybe, possibly. But based off of what we know right now, like the absolutes, I think USC is just constructed in a way right now and has the requisite talent necessary on offense to give us more issues than I think those other teams could right now. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, but let's move on here, Curtis. Uh, let's go to question number two. Here we got a question from Chris. Chris asks, at the risk of overreacting, is it safe to call Rara Thomas a bust at this point? Curtis, I don't know, man. How do you feel about that? I, I think that's a, a bit premature. And, you know, the biggest reason I go with that is because I – I never expected Ra Ra to come in and be who Dominic Lovett was. And I think that may have been where it was unfair is, you know, Ra Ra made some big plays in the past. Um, but w- in my opinion, I knew he was going to be of a bit of a project. And the fact that you look, he has more eligibility left than Dominic Lovett, I believe. And also the fact of the type system he's coming in from. I think they're both juniors. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think the system he's coming in is very different. But my question would be, what what are you basing this on, Chris? And I, I don't mean that to like come at you hard, man. Not at all. What's I really appreciate the question, but like, what are we basing this idea that Ra Ra Thomas is a bust? I mean, is it because yeah, he didn't and, play? And that's G-Day? what I think it is too. Like, yes, he didn't play in the bowl game, but in no way, shape, or form do I or, probably not bowl game. game in G Day. But I don't believe that means he's the bust. I think it was more of you know there was some you know it was it was a way to send a punishment. It was internal it. punishment, Curtis. That's what yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. That's what it was. So we don't want this guy to miss a game. Um, and look, you know, under Kirby, the MO is like, you know, when the felony charge got dropped, I felt like it was going to be something like this. You know, there was a felony charge hanging over his head. I was like, I don't know. He might not be on the team if that hangs, if that continues to hang over his head. But when that got dropped, I was like, okay, he's going to be back on the team. Probably won't miss a game. Probably some internal punishment. I think this is certainly part of that. It's basically what I've, what I've heard behind the scenes. So, look, I, I get like, okay, he comes in, comes into Georgia and almost immediately gets into trouble, domestic dispute, whatever you want to call it. And that's not a good look, right? And he doesn't play G-Day. And it's like, wow, man, we're hearing all this great stuff about Dominic Lovett and nothing about Rod Rod Thomas. What's going on there? I, I, I'm with you, Chris. I think that's a little bit premature. I'm certainly not willing to go there yet. It might end up being the case. It might. I'm not going to completely dismiss the possibility, but I don't think we have enough evidence right now to sit here and say, oh, yeah, Rod Rod Thomas is a bust. Let's just give up with the guy and let's move on. I, I certainly am not ready to go there yet. This is a guy that is a proven 
player playmaker in the SEC. You're right, Curtis, a very different system. And I do think it will take him a little bit more of a learning curve to learn what we do offensively, the side adjustments. Because basically, Curtis, in the area, a lot of what they do, I mean, they, they call routes, but a lot of it is like, especially when they run, call their four vert stuff, it's like basically run to grass, like run to open grass. That's what they do. So I, there's certainly going to be a learning curve for him more. So I think that there's going to be for Dominic Lovett. Um, and then you throw in the, the, obviously the legal issues behind the scene, the internal punishment, all of that stuff. I think that's certainly derailed his spring, but I don't necessarily think that's going to keep him from eventually becoming a really productive player for us at wide receiver. I do think right now that he is behind Marcus Rosemi, Jack Saint. That is certainly subject to change as we get into fall camp. I think if he keeps his, keeps his nose clean and goes to work, puts his head down, and and just grinds. I think that he can certainly work himself. I think. I mean, I expect him to be part of our rotation, don't you? I mean, at least in some level. Yeah, absolutely. And I and that's why I don't think he's a bust. I mean, it's not like um, man, I can't even remember the name, but that one guy who came in as a transfer when it first really started. Uh, Jonathan Rome. Yeah, the Sasquatch. Does he exist? Is he really there? Or even like and, Matt and Landers. We, think- we heard so much about Matt Landers while he was here. And obviously we know it never really just worked out for him here. Goes to Toledo. was a little bit better. Goes to Arkansas. Had a really nice year last year for Arkansas, but it just never really worked out for us. I mean, I'm not even ready to go there at this point with him, right? No, not at all. And I think that's why I'm like, eh, I'm not there. Yeah, I mean, he is a proven playmaker in the SEC. We're not talking about G5 or anything like that. We're talking about in the SEC, in the SEC West. Different kind of offense, absolutely. I just wouldn't read too much into the fact that he did not play a GD. Now, would I like to have seen him out there? Of yeah, course. I agree. Yeah, I, I, I would have loved to have seen him out there, but I don't think that necessarily means that he is going to be a non-factor this year or he might be a guy that's going to be gone you know, sooner rather than later. I don't think any of that's true. I haven't heard anything like that behind the scenes. If I do, I'll let you guys know, but to this point, I haven't heard anything like that. So, no, I do think that's a little premature right now. I'm not necessarily saying he's going to be, be a big-time player for us this year. I don't – I mean, again, he's not starting right now, as of right now, and that – I mean, that might be the case the entire season, but that doesn't mean he's going to be a, a bust long-term. All right, Curtis, uh, this is an interesting question. This is our man, Josh. Always appreciate you, Josh. Know we love you, man. Um, Josh asks, who is a better comparison for outside linebacker Darius Smith as far as how we will use him? Lorenzo Carter, Walter Grant, or Leonard Floyd? What do you think, Kurt? Walter Grant's just a bad comparison completely for me. Um, I I wouldn't want – I mean, Walter was a solid contributor for us, but – I would, I, mean, I would I would have higher hopes for Darius. Realistically, there's three people. It's Lorenzo, Leonard Floyd, and Adam Anderson. That, and there you I, go. That's the one I think that this is on the to, list that I would go with. Yes, it, it, but still going with his list, because I get two of the three, I think, are very fair. Um, I would go more so um, Leonard Floyd. Um, Lorenzo was a little bit bigger and wasn't used as much in the dime and nickel packages as you saw Leonard Floyd at the time. And, and by comparison, Adam Anderson, which I think is that's going to be more the role of Darius Smith, in my opinion. Yeah, I think Darius is a, is a unique athlete. Um, I don't think he's quite the level athlete Adam Anderson is, so that's why I don't think it's a perfect fit for him. And I got imagine that's why our man Josh left him off there because it's not a perfect fit. But I do think that we are going to use him in a lot of the same ways with our dime package, have him on the field as a guy that can spy the quarterback. And we actually, I mean, G-Day, Curtis, you know how vanilla we are at G-Day, right? Well, we were using him in that role uh, at least a couple of snaps in the spring game where he was basically just dropping back and into a zone and kind of spying the quarterback. He has that type of athleticism, not Adam Anderson level, but he is he is a really good athlete. He moves well. He covers a lot of ground. He's really got really long legs, all those kind of things. 
And he's also a little undersized right now in terms of holding up consistently against the run, setting the edge, closing on pulling guards, all those kind of things. He's not ready from a physical standpoint to do all of those things, but he's a really good athlete. So you want to try to find ways to get him on the field. And I think that's how you find ways to get him on the field is, is to use him in those situations where, you know, you have a dynamic, you know, mobile quarterback where you want to have somebody out there that that can spy him or be what we call our mirror defender. And I think he certainly could be that guy. So when the quarterback breaks the pocket, you've seen this, I mean, over and over again, guys, past couple of years, when we have that guy spying the quarterback, basically what they're told to do, as soon as the quarterback breaks the pocket, they trigger and they are blitzing downhill as soon as the quarterback breaks the pocket. We saw um, Channing Tindall make a big play in the red zone against Alabama in the national championship game doing exactly that right after he had the boneheaded play where uh, Nicobe Dean like, got all over him there. Um, so we, we see that all the time. I think Darius certainly can be used in that role. I just, I, I go back, I just, I'm not sure he's ready right now to be more of an actual edge player where he's setting the edge against the run. Because I think Lorenzo did a lot more of that then I think we're going to see from Darius this year. And who knows how Darius is going to fill out in coming years. He's still a really young guy going to year two. I just don't think his body is ready for that right now. And Leonard Floyd, I mean, he, he it was a different era for us. Our defense was a little bit different back then. Leonard played the run fine. He was obviously more of a pass rusher. And he was also a guy that we all, you know, in our nickel package, we would use him out there. Um, as a guy that was basically playing star at times. We did that really effectively against Auburn a couple of times. And so I, I think you can do that with Darius too. So I think of all those three, I would lean more towards Darius. I, I would lean more towards Leonard Floyd, right? Yeah, that's because I think their athleticism is more comparison, comparable. Yeah. yeah, I think that's where I, I, I would lean towards. I don't know if it's an exact fit because he's a little bit bigger than Leonard, um, but I think it's probably the closest fit among that group. All right, Kurt, let's go to the next question here. we got one from Jamie. Jamie asked, do you think the hire of Mike Bobo will help us more in recruiting quarterbacks than what Todd Munking gave us? That's an interesting question here. What do you think? I think it will. Um, Todd Munkin. I mean, if we land Dylan Raiola, I mean, I know that Munkin laid the groundwork, but if Bobo can, can land that plane and bring it home, then, I mean, the answer has got to be yes, right? It is, and I think the biggest reason is, yes, you know, Munkin still got Vandegrift and Stockton and people, but – I have to be honest, I think Munkin, I think long-term would be a better fit at landing quarterbacks just based on um, the fact that I think he's more involved in the recruiting aspect of it. Munkin really um, is good at it, don't get me wrong, uh, but I think it's more on what he did on the field as much as where I think Bobo's going to build the relationships with these guys. And he still has a good track record. Yes, he hasn't hadn't, you know, been everything that we saw before um, or – not that we haven't seen before, but he's had a rough patch here and there, and this could be brought up against him. But I still think long term that get him back into our system that I think he can do it. I mean, if Bobo is productive in our offense, that's all guys are going to care about. If we have a really good year this year, I think that's all future quarterbacks are going to care about because he can say, hey, look what I did with all this town around me. I think absolutely that Bobo can have greater success recruiting quarterbacks than Todd Munkin. And it's not that Munkin, like you're saying, almost exactly what you're saying, Curtis. I don't want to echo exactly what you said, but I think Munkin's recruiting prowess was based more on reputation and what he was able to do within our system. And the fact that he coached in the NFL, that was very attractive to potential quarterbacks. And the fact that he played that he runs a pro style system, all of those things can put you in a league, all that he's been there. He can show you what, what, what's expected. He knows what, what coaches want, all that kind of stuff. I think that reputation and that experience is what really helped Munkin land guys like Brock Vinegrift and eventually Gunnar Stockton. 
I also think Bobo is a really good quarterback coach, Curtis. Is, you know, he, he can also point to Matthew Stafford, right? I know it was a while exactly. ago. You look, you look at Rayola, and I think that's a big part of it, too. It's like yeah. the relationship and when you have someone like Matthew Stafford in your corner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Stafford, I mean, it's been pretty well documented. He's been talking up since Bobo got hired. He's been talking to Bobo to the, to the Rayola family, who he's very close with, going back to, the, to his playing days in Detroit. So I, I do think that that certainly helps. I mean, I, I would obviously you have to say that Bobo does not have the resume of Todd Munkin. There's no question there. But I think given a year or two in our system with the weapons he has at his disposal, I know some people don't believe in Mike Bobo. That's fine. That's your prerogative. I happen to believe in him. I think that he will do a very good job for us. I do not think that we will will really skip a beat offensively with Mike Bobo at the helm. I really do not. I mean, maybe we'll, you lose a little bit without Stetson Bennett because Stetson was really good for us. But I think Bobo is going to be a fantastic coordinator for us. I think he is going to burnish that reputation with his production over the next year or two, and that's going to help him moving in the future, recruiting quarterbacks. And here's the other thing, Curtis. Bobo also is just an excellent recruiter in general. I think that's really undervalued when you talk about Mike Bobo. I mean, obviously, you want first and foremost, he's got to be able to call plays and to build an offense and, the, and all that, right? That's, that's probably number one. But Bobo, when he was here in Athens, Curtis, was the best recruiter on staff. I mean, this guy... He, he gets after it. I mean, Kirby's probably the most connected guy in the state of Georgia. Mike, Mike Bobo might be the second most connected coach in all of college football in the state of Georgia. I mean, I go back to, you know, I, I mentioned this before in the show. I go back to when we landed Malcolm Mitchell and Jay Roman out of Valdosta High School. Kirby Smart, who we all think of, we all view him as like the king of recruiting, right? Like he's the guy. Well, Mike Bobo beat Kirby Smart head, head to head for both those guys in that, in that cycle. And Kirby wanted those guys badly. And it was Bobo going down there. He's, he's a South Georgia guy going down there, recruiting those guys and ultimately landing them and keeping them from going to Alabama when Alabama was at the height of their Saban madness or Saban success. So I know that's just anecdotal, but that is just a, a, at least one small bit of evidence of how good of a recruiter Mike Bobo is. I mean, this guy, he, he just gets after it. And he grinds in a way that Todd Munkin was never going to do. That's one of the reasons Todd Munkin went back to the NFL is that he did not like the recruiting aspects of it. It's, it takes a lot of time, guys. It is an absolute grind. These guys never stop recruiting. Like, literally never stop recruiting. When I go to these tennis matches and Kirby Smart comes out sometimes, and he does. One of his sons actually plays tennis. He comes out there, and he usually he'll stay for about an hour or so, if that. But, like, the dude's checking his phone every five seconds. And who do you think that is? Those are recruits, guys. I mean, that's what he's doing nonstop. And Bobo is more equipped to do that. He's more willing to do that than Todd Munkin ever was. So I think when you take that into account and you also think about, you know, what he's able, what he was able to do with Matthew Stafford, uh, Super Bowl winning quarterback, by the way, and then I think, you know, burnish your reputation a little bit over the next year or two with the weapons he has, I do think that long-term he will have more success recruiting quarterbacks than what Todd Munkin did. And I know that sounds crazy. This Munkin was really good. He's the one that kind of got us in there with Raiola, but I think it's going to be Boba that's going to close the door on that one and it's going to land that plane. All right, Kurt, next question here. It's about the offensive line. Michael has, I think it's a good question. Michael says he loves our starting five slash six on the offensive line, presuming that Austin Blasky is the first off the bench. But what are your thoughts on the depth after that? Curse, I do think this is an important question because every single year we have offensive linemen go down with injuries, whether it's Isaiah Wynn at times, whether it's uh, last year we had Warren McClendon go down in the SEC championship game. We have guys go down with injuries, and you have to have some dudes behind them that are ready to play at a high level in the SEC. So how do you feel about the depth behind what we've got with our, with our top five or six guys? I actually feel pretty good. Um, if I had to be honest, I mean, you think of Micah Morris, um, 
I think he's going to be someone really pushing at the guard position. Uh, Dylan Dylan Fairchild, almost went the wrong name again, is going to be pushing there. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people pushing around, and I think, or not pushing around, but pushing for playing time. Um, you have Blasky, who's going to be a guy at um, tackle. I, I feel pretty confident, realistically, as long as things don't truly go catastrophic or um, catastrophic, which we know they can, but you hope they don't. But I think that we can withstand it. Yeah, Blasky, I would, and I think Michael's kind of including him in like the top five or six guys there because I think he's already established himself. Like he's going to be in the rotation. Is he going to start? We'll find out right now. I still put my money on Ernest Green, but Blasky's certainly still in that conversation. That battle is yet to be decided. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I have not seen a lot of Austin Blasky in his time here at Georgia because he hasn't played a lot. So he was one of the guys I was very excited to watch at G Day, and I was impressed. I, I, I see why. We had him playing at tackle. You know, when, when we reported week one that, oh, this guy is actually getting reps at, at tackle, at left tackle. It's like, what? I thought this guy was going to be like maybe our backup center. But which he has taken reps as, as our center for a couple of years now. So I was kind of skeptical. I, was like, I don't know, man. All right, we'll see how this works out. But I thought he looked fairly natural out there. He's a tough physical guy. Gives a little something different from that, that physicality standpoint, just that nastiness. You usually see him on the like an interior alignment. So it's nice to see that on the on the edges out there. I mean, see the athlete that Ernest Green or Marius Mims are like, no, he's not that. But I, I do feel very confident in him being a guy that can certainly go out there and play at a high level in the SEC. But you mentioned some good names there, Curtis. I mean, Dylan Fairchild is the first guy. I think if somebody goes down at guard, I think Fairchild is the first guy off the bench. That's basically what I've been told. Like, this is a guy the coaches are really, really high on. He will be one of our starting guards next year. feel very strongly about that. Micah Morris, as you mentioned, he's the strongest guy on the team, guys. Like, he is, like, nine. he's just a big physical dude. He's 6'6", 330, and he is strong. He throw, apparently just throws around the weights in the weight room. Jared Wilson's another guy, Curtis. He's the guy that got most of the reps as the number two center behind Cedric Van Pran this year. So if someone that was the name, I couldn't, I couldn't remember his name, but that's who I was. I was meaning to talk about him. Yeah. Jared Wilson's a guy. I think if, I mean, if something happens to, to said, which God, I certainly hope it doesn't. I mean, I think he's the guy that's going to go in there at center. Um, Then, you know, at tackle outside of our top three, I feel really good about the top three at tackle. How do you feel about Monroe Freeling, Chad Lindbergh? How do you feel about those guys if they were pressing to duty? Um, I'd be a little bit more worried there, to be honest. But I mean, let's yeah. be fair. That's going to be across the country. When you're going to your uh, fourth, fourth guy at tackle, tackle, you're yeah. not going to be super confident. Yeah, I'm really high on Monroe Freeling long term. I mean, this guy's a five star mm-hmm. prospect. He's just not ready right now. I mean, I, I was re- really excited about landing him. But I told you guys when we did our recruiting recap episodes, like he's going to be really good for us. He's a great athlete out there. He's got a great frame, but he's got to fill that frame out. He's still He's, I mean, coming out of high school, he's about 280, 285 pounds. I don't know where he is right now. He came in as an early enrollee, so now he's obviously been in our weight program. He's been in the nutrition program. So I imagine he's filled out some, but he he had some – he needed to put on some good weight and get stronger. He needed a year in the weight room, but he will be good. He's just not – I don't think he's ready right now. I mean, Curtis, we have, Chad Limber is another guy that we haven't seen a ton of. But what I've seen from him, especially what I saw at G-Day, um, I don't want to rip the guy. Just can I, can I say not impressed? Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. I thought the footwork was lazy. I thought the bend was not there at all. I he was allowing defenders to punch. He was like he was allowing himself to be punched first. Like he was not punching anybody. The allowing defenders to get his, their hands on him, control the play, control him, and that's um, not what you want to see from a from a tackle. So I I don't know if I have a ton of confidence there. So hopefully we don't have a couple tackles go down because if they do, then we might be a little bit of an issue there. But. I, I like the fact that we have three tackles. You're right, Curtis. I mean, how many teams out there actually have four or five tackles that you think can actually go out there and play for a high level? I would say not many. Um, most teams don't have – I mean, 
hell, most teams don't have two, right? I have one guy that you feel good in. Some don't even have that. But for us to have three guys that we feel really good at to tackle positions like we did last year, I think we're in a really good spot there. All right, Curtis, Michael has a bonus question. He threw this one in late, uh, later on this week. But he, uh, so we obviously, Curtis, we did our draft projections for next year. And like we did our, our tiers, like locks to get drafted, first round guys, so on and so forth, right? Well, one guy that was on the list that I will take responsibility for, we kind of got late in the show and we were kind of trying to wrap things up. I know you had to get out of here. And I, I just, I, I, I whiff, man. I just completely forgot to mention him. I, after, actually, after the episode, I looked down. I was like, oh, shit, man, I didn't say his name. But Tyke Smith, Curtis, is a guy that we did not mention. And Michael's holding us accountable for that. So appreciate it, Michael. And um, Michael says, Curtis, that he thinks Tyke Smith, if he starts, will be a lock to get drafted. So let's just go back and kind of do one more draft projection heading into next year. Do you agree with that? Do you think Tyke Smith is a lock to get drafted? If he plays the whole season, I don't see why not, to be honest. When you, especially some of these later rounds, teams are willing to put take chances more on guys like him um, who have put in All-American seasons or played for great coaches. Um, look at Darion Kendrick. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But uh, Tyke, you know, Darion didn't have a, terrible off the off the field history but he had some problems um and like Tyke, really, did, yeah i mean and that really hadn't been the case with Tyke, so i think people are more willing to, if, if you can go in and start especially the way he stayed mature and stayed the you know stayed the course at georgia after having an all-american season before that i could easily see someone taking a chance so i want to say he's a lock because i believe if he starts all season i think it's a lock but i am borderline between lock and he still needs to prove something I think Michael's right. I think you're right, Curtis. If he starts and he starts all season, then yes, I think he's a lock. But is it a guarantee he does that? That's my question. Yeah, and and, that, and that's kind of where I'm like, he needs to prove it. It's like, okay, if you prove that you can start the whole season, then then you are a lock, in my opinion. Because I'm telling you guys, Janela Guerrero is good. Yeah, the that guy, I mean. Very high on him. Yeah, and not only that, but I mean, you could also take a chance of putting someone like A.J. Harris back there to get him on the field. Well, and you also look at the safety position. I know that Javon Bullard played safety almost exclusively this spring, but, you know, what if David Daniel comes on, you know, in fall camp? It's like, okay, this guy is like, he's he's really good. Like, we, can we keep this guy off the field? So maybe you put him as safety. Well, and if Javon Dirty back Dan, in star. You got to think Dirty Dan. Dirty Dan, absolutely. I mean, there's just some options there. I mean, and Kirby was, you know, and, he, and Kirby, you know, He's usually pretty straightforward with things, but there also are certain things that he's not going to reveal, but you can kind of like read between the lines of what he's saying. But he flat out said, you know, when he was asked about like Javon, hey, is Javon playing safety, so on and so forth, you know, multiple times during spring. And I think after after Gita, he was asked about that again. And his response was essentially like, hey, look, we know that Javon can play star. We need to develop other stars. Right now we have no one behind him that we trust in that position right now. And we need guys to get reps. So we're going to put Javon at safety because we don't, we also need to build safety depth. So we won't put in Javon doesn't have a ton of safety reps. So we want to get him reps there because every rep he's taking the star means the other guys aren't developing. Right. So you want to get Tyke Smith, you want to get Janelle Aguero, a bunch of reps at star. And then you want to get Javon reps at safety so that if he, you know, if you feel like he's the best fit there, he's actually ready to do that. So I don't know if it's a done deal. I mean, obviously again, he played safety all spring. And so I, I would say the odds are right now that he will play safety, right? Yeah. I mean, as we sit right now and say, yes, I, I would certainly lean towards saying he plays safety, Tyke Smith plays star. But as Kirby also said throughout spring, we're like 25% of the way 
through our practices before we get to our first game. We still have all the summer. We still have all the fall camp. We have like a month of fall camp to go through before those decisions have to ultimately be, be made. So there is time for other guys. You mentioned Dan Jackson coming back healthy. David Daniel, who the coaches are, are have seen a lot of improvement from over the past couple of years. If those guys can step up and say, oh, man, it's really hard to keep those guys off the field, then maybe you slide Javon back to, to star and, and Tyke doesn't play. I, I, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying it's certainly possible. So it's hard for me to sit here right now and say that Tyke Smith is a lot to be drafted. So I would put him, like going back to our tiers, I would put him in our third tier, which was needs some work, like needs to prove it this year. And by prove, I mean he needs to prove that he can, number one, start the season at, at star, and number two, hold on to that position all year long when you have a guy like Janelle Aguero who's really talented, you know, right behind you there. If he does those two things, that means he's good enough, in my opinion, to be drafted. But we have to see that first, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's just my take on that. So I, I would lo- I would love for Tyke Smith to get drafted because that means he had a really good year for us. But I think that remains to be seen. I mean, I guess, and the thing about Tyke, guys, he's a really good player. I know he's 13 mile American back at West Virginia. There are some limitations with him from like an athleticism standpoint. He's not the fastest guy out there. He's not the quickest guy. I mean, he's got good athleticism, but it's certainly not elite athleticism. So that's that's one of my questions with him. We'll see. I, I, I'm wishing the guy the absolute best. I want the best guy to play, obviously. But Tyke's been through a lot, and I, I really hope it works out well, well for him. I'm really rooting for him, but I just don't know if it's a lock right now. All right, Kurt, this is another good question. This one's from Princess. Appreciate it, man. And Princess asks, or he says, I think our most dynamic group on offense could be an 11 personnel with Brock, Ladd, Dominic Lovett, Arian, and whoever between Ra-Ra and Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint, uh, having those guys outside, with Dominic Lovett lining up at running back as the orbit motion angle route swing pass option guy out of the backfield. How do you feel about that, giving that as a specific example, and do you believe in Bobo's overall creativity to scheme touches for our most explosive guys? All right, Chris, a lot to dig into there. So let's go back to the personnel group. So 11 personnel, because I had to read this a couple times myself to make sure I got it here, but I get it now. So Brock at tight end. Lad, Arian, and one of Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint, Rara Thomas as your three receivers. And then Dominic Lovett in the backfield at running back, motioning out of the backfield on whatever type of motion, whether it's orbit motion, angle route, whatever, as kind of a receiving threat out of the backfield. How do you feel about that personnel grouping? Um, a little nervous. Just, I mean, realistically, um, the the reason I say that is because you never want to have some. I mean, I like everything but love it at running back. And the only thing that gives me caution is because there are times where you go in those routes or the um those schemes, and yet you have to call the running back in to pass block. And do we trust Love it to ever be called back in? No, that's the thing. It's like when you're like that's. I actually like the creativity princess of that of that personnel grouping, but that can't be something that we do on a consistent basis because number one, there's no run threat there whatsoever. So the defense knows they can pin their ears back, come after the quarterback. They know they can play pass coverage is only, and if we're in that, in that personnel grouping like that, there's only so many plays that we're going to run out of that grouping, right? Curtis, you, you start to become very predictable. Exactly. And I much. think that's where yeah. my nerve or my caution would be. Yeah. And you're exactly right. Pass protection, you know, you know, we, our quarterbacks have the freedom at the line of scrimmage to change our pass protection. So what if you're, uh, you're in there and I, and I guess if you have a play called, you know, it's especially play like a screen patch or something, you're just going to run no matter what, but what if for some or whatever reason, you know, Carson Beck, Brock Vinegar, whoever it ends up being a quarterback has to change the protection that any change into a protection that involves a running back being there blocking. And 
I I'm with you, man. I don't know if I trust love it. Cause he just, I mean, he will take zero reps doing that in practice. Like he's not going to do that. So I, I think you're just limited on what you can do. I mean, yeah, I think it's a really creative way to get your best, your most dynamic playmakers on the field. I agree with you there, Princess. Like in terms of like what is the most dynamic grouping we can have in terms of all these playmakers on the field? That's probably it. I like the creativity. I just again, I don't think you can do that too much. I think that's something you can do maybe two or three times a game, maybe max, because um, you get to become too predictable, so on and so forth. As we kind of just went through there, but I do like the creativity. But going to the next part of the question here, Curtis. What do you think about Bobo's overall ability to be creative offensively and kind of scheme touches for those explosive playmakers that we have? I think that's going to be the part I'm most unsure about Bobo and that I need to see from him. If I had to be honest about one thing that I really um, feel like I'm unsure of, and that's his ability to scheme people open. I, I will say this. I do think that Todd Munkin had an edge on Mike Bobo in terms of pass concepts and passing game in general. I mean, one of the reasons we brought Todd Munkin in is because this dude knows how to throw to win. And I think Bobo does too. I think, however, I do think that Bobo is, his strength as an offense coordinator is designing the run game. But I, I I do think that he does, he gets a bad rap in terms of the passing. I think this guy, you know, we had Aaron Murray to work with. He actually had a really good quarterback and we kind of opened things up a little bit when you had Matthew Stafford. I mean, I thought you saw some really good things from obviously record-breaking offense for the University of Georgia with Aaron Murray, Okay. So I, I think there's a lot made of Mike Bobo not being his creative play caller, his, like his antiquated offensive system. We bring him in there. Now we're going to go back to the Stone Age. I think that's ridiculous, and that's absolutely freaking insane. Are we going to run the ball a little bit more? I mean, maybe. Um, I, I don't even know that that's necessarily true. I think that our run game, our, our, run, our run schemes will be a little bit different. I think they'll be more effective, honestly. I think we'll see more explosiveness out of the run game than we saw under Todd Munkin. But I also don't think that we're going back to the Stone Age and we're not going to be able to throw the ball to win. I think that's crazy. I think I've seen, I've seen that. I've just seen it from Mike Bobo, it, not even just at Georgia, even as at Colorado State. I saw them do some things offensively. That's like, hey, man, like, that's, I like that stuff. I mean, even at G-Day, Curtis, I thought there were a couple of, of, of and we were obviously pretty vanilla because you always are, but even being vanilla, I thought I saw some things offensively that I had not seen from Mike Bobo offense. I think this guy has some time to evolve and learn and grow and develop and get better. And I, I, I honestly, Curtis, I mean, maybe saying there's no, I have no doubts about his ability to do that is, I mean, that's a little strong, but it's not something I worry about, to be honest with you. I'm not really worried about it at all. I think, I, I believe Mike Bobo. I think that he will find ways to get guys open. I think he's a great play caller. I think he's got a lot of experience. I think sitting and working with Todd Munkin for a year will certainly help him in that regard. So it's really, honestly, I know a lot of people are worried about it. It's just not something that I worry about, to be entirely honest with you. All right, guys, last question here. So we've had all football questions so far, but we got to get to a baseball question here. So, Curtis, we haven't talked a ton of baseball the past couple of months because, you know, um, we haven't been good. Um, we just lost, you know, last weekend, lost a series to Ole Miss on the road, who was by far the worst team, at least record-wise, in the entire SEC. So that, uh, you know, coming off the sweep of Arkansas, that was um, that was kind of a downer. That, that one didn't feel great. But as Oliver points out, Curtis, we just won a series at home this weekend against Tennessee. Huge, huge series win. So Oliver asked, would the series win over Tennessee? What do you think the odds are that the dogs make the NCAA tournament? So I, I talked about this a little bit, Curtis, I think two or three weeks ago. We did our last mailbag. That was right after we had swept Arkansas. How do you feel now after this series went over Tennessee? It was number 18 in the country coming in this weekend. I'm feeling a little bit better. I still think they need to go out and maybe win at least one more series. Um, if I had to be well, honest, we have to, I, we absolutely 
have to win the series in Missouri this weekend. Yeah, I was say, I don't think you can lose the Missouri series and have a bid unless you make a crazy run in the SEC tournament. We, ha- we have, of course, here's, here's the numbers. And we've, we've read these out before. So right now we sit at 10 conference wins, okay? Historically, a 12-win SEC record. This does not include SEC tournament, by the way. Historically, a 12-win SEC record gets you in 18% of the time since the NCAA term expanded in 1999, okay? 13 wins in the SEC regular season gets you in 38% of the time. If you get to 14 wins, that puts you over 50%, up to 68% of the time you get in, okay, Curtis? So we're at 10 wins right now. We have two series left. We have a road series at Missouri, who um, is one of the worst teams in the league, started off hot, and they've completely fallen off the face of the earth now. I think they have like six or seven wins in conference right now. And then we have the final series of the of the of the regular season, Curtis. We welcome in number one LSU. We're at 10 wins right now. 14, I think, gets I honestly, Curtis, with our strength of schedule right now, our strength of schedule is number four in the country. Our RPI is number 23 right now. And that's without these last two wins being added to that. So we probably we'll we might be pushing top 20 uh once they update the, the RPI in the next day or so. So with the strength of schedule at number four right now, and that's only going to go up playing LSU eventually, uh, RPI will be somewhere between 20 and 25, probably, it's at least certainly top 30. I think if we get to 13 wins, we have a really, really good case. Because right now, Curtis, if you look at the current college, college baseball rankings, we have played five of the, we've played series against five of the top six teams in the country. Five of the top six teams in the country. So I think if we get to 13, we're in pretty good shape. My question for you, Curtis, is can we get three more wins over the next two weekends? I'm very nervous um, that the Missouri series may go bad just because of injuries to pitching. I mean, we're already dealing with a lot of problems with our pitching staff, and now add in all and these Jaden Woods has got the tendonitis in the shoulder. He hadn't pitched for now a couple Goldstein of weeks now. Yeah. Out. Goldstein went out. He went out after the first batter yesterday. I thought we were done. Tip of the cap to Jarvis Evans, by the way, freshman who basically did not pitch. He did not, not basically, he did not pitch the entire first month of the SEC schedule. And he's pitched some big time in some big time moments and some big time games against Arkansas, against Ole Miss, and now against Tennessee. Guy went five and a third, scoreless. Okay. Dude was just absolutely dealing seven strikeouts, just incredible for a freshman in that spot. So, we're getting a little bit more from our bullpen right now, Curtis, which is which has been our biggest issue all year long. These past two games, they've been lights out, lights out the past two games. Do you feel confident that they can continue this trend, or is that just kind of like this this mini oasis in the middle of the of the SEC season? It's hard to think, say otherwise. That it, I think it is wishful thinking right now. Um, just because it's not they haven't this isn't who they have been. So I I don't know how much how realistic it is to expect it to continue. Well, Dalton Raidens has been pretty good for us late in late in games when he's got opportunities. Not great, but he's been pretty good for us. And he was good for us again today. Jarvis Evans, man, I really like what I'm seeing from him right now. I think Leighton Finley's coming on. He's gonna be a big power pitcher for us. He's another freshman. I think some of our young arms are coming on, Curse. And that's what has me excited. I mean, you know, Liam Sullivan's also been dealing with a little bit of a shoulder soreness situation, and he was pretty good today i think i think i'm giving four runs I think they were all on him um but he's been solid for us he's still not a dynamic pitcher um jaden woods i mean his era even when he's healthy is over five so i still have a lot of concerns about the pitching depth in general um but i i, I feel like we've got a shot curse i mean if we go into missouri and we went just win that series if we get two out of three that puts us to 12 wins so the question becomes can we get one game at home against lsu 
And, I'm, and that's not a guarantee. I just think with our metrics, the RPI, and our strength of schedule, I think 13 can get us in. I don't know, man. Can we, do you think we can get one against LSU? I really don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, when you think back to what we did against South Carolina, there's no given that we can. We did also sweep Arkansas at home. That's a top six team in the country. We have, and that's why it's just so hard to. Yeah, you know. don't know. It's there's, there's no way to know. We just need to get one, man. We, we've got to get one. Hell, you know what? what we need, really need to do, Curtis? Let's go sweep Missouri. Yeah. And I don't know with the pitching situation. I know we've got injuries, the death, it's a problem. But if we can some way, somehow find a way to go on the road and sweep Missouri, I mean, I won't call it a lock, but I'll, I'll feel really, really, really good about our chances. I'd feel really, I mean, saying, I think 13 gets us in. That would put us right at 13. But hey, you know, we got a shot. This this win the series went over Tennessee has has kept those postseason hopes alive. I, I I don't I wouldn't say they're on life support. I think it's a little bit. I think we have a little bit better of a chance than that right now. But um, I certainly you know I I, I don't know like what would you put the percentage at, Curtis? Is it above or below fifty percent for you? Below. Really, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm buying in, Curtis. I might be an idiot. I'm I'm a believe in our guys, and maybe it's just, just the I don't know. I'm also partially like. This sounds terrible. I'm also partially like if us missing on the playoffs, is that what's going to be the catalyst to fire Scott Strickland or does him just squeaking in enough to keep for him to keep his job? That's the other question. I was having this conversation with uh, my guy, Sam, on social media this week, on Twitter this weekend. I, I'm with you, Curtis. I, I think the long term best interest of our pro- of our program is to move on from Scott Strickland. I think I've seen enough. I don't think he's going to be the guy to get us over the hump. But at the same time, I, I'm not physically capable of rooting against our team. You know what I mean? I know. And that's where like I'm kind of stuck. And it's also not only it's not rooting against, but having no belief in Scott Strickland at the same time. Yeah, yeah it's tough for me, man. It's because like it's, I really question a lot of his decision making at times. I, I question decision making. I question recruiting more than anything, Curtis. That's that. And I think that probably is why we that's the bottom line because. You just don't have the players to, to use. Yeah. I mean, how did Tennessee jump from like mediocrity at best to one of the best programs in the country overnight? Well, they got a coach you can freaking recruit. Yeah. I mean, Tony Vitello is an incredible recruiter. That's what you've got to have. And we just, yeah. like, we have good players. We don't have enough of them, man. And it's and frustrating because you see how we know how um, good the state of Georgia is. And, you know, Charlie Condon, who's, I mean, Curtis, how much is it, is it really a stretch to say he's the best hitter in the league right now? No, no especially not after this weekend. I mean, the guy I mean, he's about to break the SEC rec- freshman record for home runs. He is. I mean, got 22 I, home know, runs. I now. looked it up because this guy realistically, I think he's a strong golden spikes candidate. I, he's certainly in the conversation. I don't think he'll win it because our team's not great, but he's certainly, I mean, to say that we have a guy that's in that conversation, Curtis, and then we still might not make the postseason. Uh, to me, that's, that's all the evidence you need of like, Oh, it's probably time to move on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when you have not just not just Charlie Condon, who's I mean, Curtis, the the only player I can in my lifetime watching Georgia baseball that I can say was better than him, at least at the plate, was Gordon Beckham. Yeah, I think Gordon Beckham hit like what? I think 28 home runs that year, 28 home runs that year. Yeah, I think he hit 28. I mean, Charlie's got some time, man. I mean, he hit two more today and he hit three over the weekend. I think think, so. Yeah. Yeah. Three over the weekend. I mean, he's uh, that's certainly within range, depending on how, you know, if we go into the postseason and so on and so forth. But it's certainly not out, outside their own possibility for him to be able to do that. But when you have Charlie Condon and you also have Connor Tate, who is who has been an awesome hitter for us for a couple of years now, you have both those guys in the middle of your lineup and you still can't make the postseason, like can't even get in the NCAA tournament. That's a fireball offense, man. Yeah. 
And I don't, I'm really not one of those guys. I don't like calling for people's jobs. I, I feel cringy even saying it, but like, this is big. You're getting paid. You're getting paid a lot of money, man. And like, you got to produce. And when you got guys that can hit like that in your lineup and you, you don't make the postseason, if that doesn't be in the case, then I mean, dude, it's pretty obvious. It's time to move on. And even if we do make the postseason, Curtis, if we get knocked down the region, which is kind of what we always do under Scott like Strickland, last year. Yeah, exactly. Like I would still move on, but I don't know. If Josh Brooks will do that. I don't know. I don't know. I have more hope with Brooks than I did McGarity, though. I'll say that. I don't know. I, I, I don't say – I'm not serious saying that I think Josh will pull the trigger if we get to the postseason. I think it's more likely than it was under Greg McGarity. We'll see. I mean, we'll that's see. fair. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, he wants to win, Curtis. I mean, he's the guy that's going to hold our coaches to more of a higher standard, I believe, in my, in my estimation, based on what we've seen at this point, what I know of and what I've heard of Josh Brooks from behind the scenes. I don't know. I mean, I'm with you, man. I'm so torn on this. I, I, for the long-term health of our program, I want him gone. I think he needs to be gone. But I also want us to make the postseason this year. I don't know what to think, man. I don't know. I don't know. It throws me, throws me for a loop, dude. All right. Uh, anything else, Curtis? No, I think that hits on everything. All right, guys. I guess that does it for us here today on the Glory UGA podcast. I will be back on Thursday with some more Georgia football talk for you guys. I hope everyone's week has gotten off to an awesome start. And if it hasn't, I hope it picks up. But for Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>